Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you for the message we're about to receive and the opportunity to lift our songs and our hearts up to you, Lord, and hopefully it will be a pleasing sound to you. Lord, we thank you for the gift for giving us forgiving us of our sins through the gift of your son. We lift this up in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship our Lord. I'm expecting Bonnie is going to be back any time now. So we'll have her back on board. I absolutely love um, this devotion, and I'm going to add a little story to it when I'm done. Nearer than you think, his angels keep you in all your ways. Psalm 91:11. Occasionally, I see reports of happenings that cannot be humanly explained, of visitors unexpectedly appearing to assist in times of crisis, or warn of impending danger. These can only be explained as the intervention of God's angels. In the Bible, angels occasionally assumed a visible form at the birth of Jesus, for example, but usually angels go about their business unseen and unrecognized. They never draw attention to themselves, but they always point to Christ. C.S. Lewis once said that we tend to make one of two errors in relationship to Satan. We either make too much of him or too little of him. The same could be said of angels. Don't make too little of them. God has given his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, Psalm 91, 11. On the other hand, don't worship them or become preoccupied with them. Instead, thank God for his angels and rejoice in their unseen watchfulness over you. Now, my little story. My entire family laughs, and actually, when we, I was just back in New Hampshire, it was brought up again that everybody is certain that God has an entire flank of angels around this lady as she drives, because I've never had an accident, and I am probably not known for my careful driving. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>
Old Testament scripture today comes from Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take a branch from the top of a tall cedar, and I will plant it on top of Israel's highest mountain. It will become a majestic cedar, sending forth its branches and producing seed. Birds of, ev of every sort will nest in it, finding shelter in the shade of the branches. And all the trees will know that it is I, the Lord, who cuts the tall tree down and makes a short tree grow tall. It is I who make the green tree wither and gives a dead tree new life. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do what I said. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My grace. 
you may be seated. Our New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First, a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of the wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it, harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. And Jesus said, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it comes the becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches, and uh, birds can make nests in its shade. Jesus used many similar stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they could understand. In fact, in his public ministry, he never taught without using parables, but afterward, when he was alone with his disciples. He explained everything to them. We'll have a responsive reading. Jesus, magnificent fountain of hope in times of happiness and despair, you are the motivation of my heart, my hope of greater things to come. My consciousness is obsessed with you I hunger for the day we will meet, when my longing will become a reality, transmit to my soul daily reminders, to always hope for greater things, for without hope, life is futile. Hope is a spirit, spiritual pillar of faith, containing many words of its own. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's been a long time since we've passed the, coll the collection plate. People have been donating regardless. But we thank you that this disease, this pandemic, has finally seems to be gotten somewhat under the control and you've provided us a, a vaccine to help, to help that move forward. Lord, you call for us to give back. You call to us to participate in your, in teaching and in learning, in sharing with others. So Lord, we ask the gifts that we're about to give be blessed and used for your purpose. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.
seated. Not you, Frank. Oh. <laughs> Can you guys hear me? I'm a little short here. Okay. So I'm going to read that to you, and if you have your Bibles, you can open to Ruth chapter 4 right now. This is the great end of this love story, and I love it. Boaz marries Ruth. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, now do you remember this? Boaz said, I, I can't marry you because there's another guy in line ahead of me. And so, okay, now this is the big finale. So he sat there, and when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. I think he had a little inkling of what was going on, though. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his, his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witness of, that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the, the name of the dead with his property so that the name will not disappear from his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. You may have standing in Ephrathah, it's got too many THs in it, Ephrathah, and famous in Bethlehem, through the offering the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, 
May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Okay, this is the last of this little chronology here. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz was the father of Obed, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. So what does that make Boaz? David's grandfather. By the grace of God. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the wonder of your word. We're in awe of you, and we're in awe of what you have written, what you've communicated to us. And you put in your word what you want to communicate with us, and it's enough, Lord, to, uh, to live a life of righteousness. And it's, it's enough, Lord, to bring us to the, the foot of the cross, uh, where we find redemption and satisfaction and blessing, uh, living a life that is pleasing to you. So I pray in the name of Jesus that you will speak to each and every one of us this morning by and through your word, that your word will bring the life that it's intended to bring. And I pray that you will quicken uh, parts of your word, Lord, uh, a sentence, a thought today that uh, can make a difference in our lives. Because we do, Lord, we commit ourselves to the living word uh, that speaks to us and brings life and deliverance and redemption in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to back up to the uh, first, first part of this, uh, this story in verses 1 through 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the price of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. If, but if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Okay, so as we leave it then, um, the other kin kinsman redeemer who is closer to Elimelech is going to, uh, is going to redeem the, the land. 
Um, it's kind of interesting. It talks about uh, took, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town. And so there was in, um, in Israel at that time a custom that if you want to legalize a, an oral transaction, which this was, then you draw 10. You had to have 10 elders that you called for a quorum. And so they came and sat in the city gate. And in the towns in Israel at that time, and still in a lot of towns in that part of the world, there is a, a, a city gate, some place where everybody would gather. Um, I, I've seen it in Turkey, in so many of the different villages, there'll be, there'll be a spot somewhere where everybody kind of gathers. And uh, when, it's, you know, when it's summer like this, everybody gathers there in the evening time and so on. But that's what he's doing. He, he's using this opportunity. There's this, this, this place where it was common for people to go and, um, and you know, and transact business. Um, an interesting story with this about the ten elders. Uh, Caroline and I were uh, in Israel. We were in Jerusalem. And we were just walking down the street one day, and somebody uh, ran out of a synagogue and grabbed me. <laughs> I'm going, you know, what's this all about? Grab, grabbed me and pulled me into, you know, into the synagogue, into actually into the portico of the synagogue, and said, uh, uh, he spoke English, and he said, uh, we need a quorum, and some uh, official die in Israel, and they needed a quorum for the synagogue. So he said, uh, uh, we need to, you know, we need to have a quorum. And I said, well, okay. And, you know, I didn't know what, I, what was going to happen to Caroline out there, but okay. That's, and so they wrapped phylacteries around my arm and, and said a few prayers over me. And they said, go. Oh. <laughs> and, and apparently, it was this same kind of thing. They needed a quorum of ten elders, uh, or at least, in this case, at least ten people, ten bodies. And so uh, they did that and then released me and I, we walked on our way. But it was an interesting kind of illustration of this, this principle. And Boaz wanted the proceeding to be legal, so he called the elders and then he called in witnesses as well. And it said there was another relative of Naomi, and the rule is that it's the nearest nearest male relative would be the kinsman redeemer. And so um, Boaz was not the nearest, but he was close, close to that. And, and I think I mentioned this last week that um, he could have been a cousin or something. We don't really know the relationship. It's not given in this story. But apparently um, this other fellow who remains unnamed was a little bit closer than, um, than Boaz. And the other question is, what was Naomi doing? Um, was, and there's two options in this. One of them is that Naomi still owns the land, um, and she came back to live in her house, and she still owned that land, um, but she's so poor that she's forced to sell the land. So if you sell the land, then you're going to, you know, the, the best option or the, you know, the, is to, have the kinsman redeemer buy the land, and then, and then it can remain in your family possession. And of course, in the year of Jubilee, it'll return back to 
that person themselves. The other is that Naomi doesn't own the land, that it had been sold by Elimelech before Naomi and her two sons went to Moab. Um, that's a possibility. And so what she is, what she is selling is the, is the redemption right of that property. So we don't really know what it is. Um, one, commentary, one commentator that I've used quite a bit uh, says that she's actually selling the land and the kinsman redeemer would buy the land just to keep it. Well, that's probably what's going on. We don't really know. But the reaction of the other man is, okay, I'll, I'll buy that land. Um, you know, it, it, it was probably a pretty good more land, enhances civic reputation and so on. The bargain without risk. Because there were no known heirs to Elimelech, um, and so he could keep that property in per perpetuity. And even the year of Jubilee, because it's still in the family name, would be applicable. So, so he, would, it would he could still retain that land come the year of Jubilee. Because, as you remember, the land is to remain, the whole principle of, in Israel was the land remained in the possession of the family to whom it was originally given. So the, uh, the idea then is that the first child born to Ruth and Boaz would inherit Elimelech's property, family property. Well, okay, that wouldn't happen if Ruth is not part of the bargain. Joshua 18 verse 9 says, So the men left and went through the land. Okay, so this now we're talking about Israel comes out of the promised land, come into the promised land, and the, the land is then divided among the different tribes. And it says they wrote its description on a scroll. This is Joshua. Town by town in seven parts and returned to Joshua in the camp at Shiloh. cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. And there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal divisions. Okay, so Joshua then... The land was given to the Israelites, and Joshua then is distributing it according to Lot in seven different portions. Now you say, why seven? There were 12 tribes. Well, three tribes had already been given land. Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The Levites were given no allotment of land. If you remember the Levites, they, they, uh, they were given land in, or given houses in the cities, but they took all their living came from the offerings that were collected. So that, that's four. Um, and then Ephraim and Manasseh were one allotment because they were from Joseph. So that leaves seven remaining tribes, and so the land is then divided between the seven uh, tribes. And you can see the the, uh, the map up here. There's uh, Asher and Naphtali and Zebulun and Issachar and then Manasseh. Manasseh was, was on both sides of the Jordan. That's why it's called the half-tribe of Manasseh. Uh, and Dan and Ephraim and Gad and Benjamin, Reuben, Judah and Simeon. So the land divided those and they were to remain then as part of that family forever. Of course, this is you know part of what's going on today, with you know the the land and the dispute between the Israelites 
and the Palestinians is the Israelites say, the land was given to our ancestors way back then. Um, and so <laughs> there's fighting all the time. Uh, so uh, verses 5 through 9. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the day, name of the dead with his property. So, okay, we didn't know that before. <laughs> now that changes everything. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. And then this interesting interlude here, or explanation. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal, gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So, so the idea then is that when this is thrown into the deal, okay, so we had the, we had the whole principle of, of the land remaining with the families, but then we also had the Leverett marriage, and, and so um, and the, that Leverett marriage concept of a brother marrying the wife of the, de of the deceased brother is it then extended beyond that to, um, <clears throat> in this case, to a cousin or to the nearest male relative. Um, so Boaz had not mentioned that before. And so this fellow says, okay, if I have to acquire Ruth, then it's going to endanger my estate. Because now, if there is heir, then the property, that property of Elimelech's could remain with him. But now, if Ruth has a son, then that son would become heir not only to the property that Elimelech had, but also to the man's entire estate. And so he says, okay, I'm out of here. Uh, I'm not going for that, that part of the deal. And uh, let me just read the, the Leveret Law. Deut 25, beginning verse 5. If brothers are living together, and one of them is without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother, as I said, that's extended now in certain situations, shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brothers so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So, so as I said, the, the, the idea is to maintain the property in the family to which it was given. So, not only would the property pass to uh, be divided with that son born to Ruth, but also this man would have had to feed uh, Naomi, Ruth, any children that they would have. So he's, he's, it's a, quite a burden financially for this man. And we don't know, you know, heart condition and so on, what is going on. But, you know, it could just simply that he's realistic and he's saying, I just can't do that. You know, I, I can't take that, I, I can't take on another wife and all the, you know, all that, uh, it, that, you know, that involves. 
And then there's an, this interesting thing that's thrown in here, this little interlude, this little explanation, that if they were going to transfer property in that day, then the man would take off his shoe and give it to somebody else, take off his sandal. Um, here's an illustration of it. I drew this myself. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's why we have internet. And so... What's interesting about is not only the custom, you know, which was strange to our ears, but also that it's put in here as an explanation. Because what it tells us is that this was written enough later in Israel that they had to put an explanation, well, this is the way it used to happen. Um, and if it were, you know, written immediately after those events, well, you know, there wouldn't be any need for explanation because everybody would about that custom. But it was enough further down the line that they had to say, okay, well, here's what it meant. So it's an interesting uh, verse in terms of dating this book and when it happened, and when it happened, and then when it was recorded. And then let's go to verses 9 through 12. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Mahlon's widow, widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses, speaking to all of the people now. Uh, it says to the elders and all the people. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. Okay, it's an oral transaction, but they needed witnesses so that if there were any dispute down the way, there would be those who could stand up and testify. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring of the Lord, through the, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So, um, Boaz then bought everything, and we don't know that until this that he didn't just buy the property of Elimelech, he bought the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. So the, he bought the whole thing, the entire family. And I want you to notice here that the change now in Ruth's status. Ruth has gone from being a, a Moabitess, who every time they spoke of her, it was Ruth the Moabitess. You know, she was the foreigner. In, you remember her? And who had no rights, no, you know, no land, nothing. She was living in poverty. And now she not only is married, you know, they're getting married, to Boaz, has proper, has standing, and she's an upstanding member of the community. And they even say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who built together, who together built up the house of Israel. So she is compared to Rachel and Leah who are the, the matriarchs of the whole uh, 12 tribes of Israel. It was through those two and, and the two concubines 
And all the, all the tribes came from those two women. So now they're not only saying, oh, Ruth, you're, you're, you're enjoying you know, status as an Israelite, but now you're compared to the, the, the upstanding you know, people in the community. It'd be like George Washington and you know, uh, being compared to the patriarchs or the matriarchs of the whole culture. So, and furthermore, they say, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this woman, may your family be like that Perez, whom Tamar bore to Ruth. And so, he's saying that may you have many children. Now, in our culture, having children is not always a financial blessing. <laughs> as, as many of you can attest. I mean, it's, you know, in our culture, we have to feed them and, you know, they're, they're, they're an expense. They're more on the expense side than the asset side, okay? But in that culture, there were only two means of production, two, two uh, areas of capital. One is land, and the other is children. Because if you have children, you have land, the children can come and children can work on the land, and so that then you're provided for in your old age. You know, we have really departed from that whole thing in, you know, in our society today, so that children are not so much a blessing, but a curse many times. Not our children, of course, but some children. But many people regard them that way, don't they? In our culture today, that children are a curse because it's just going to be, you know, too many mouths to feed. But it's also interesting to me um, the respect sometimes that, and, and, that I've observed in a lot of the Middle East. And this is what I really love about the Middle East and, and Turkey uh, in particular in, in, our, you know, in our experience, is that there's a great deal of respect for the elderly. Um, we, you know, when we get on a, you get on a metro and you're going someplace, and because I have gray hair, um, there will all, I would say almost inevitably, there'll be some young person who'll stand up and say, here, here take my seat. And, and when you walk into a room, uh, the, particularly the young people will come up and kiss your hand, if you have gray hair. You know, because, because you're elderly, and there's a respect and honor. You're to honor the elderly. And that's what is, that is uh, what's going on here as well. The young are to provide for the elderly. And so the, the young women of the town, or the women of the town, are saying that this young person that comes up, Obed, then we'll care for Naomi. Because the young care for the old when they're too, you know, when they're too old to work on their own. It's a nice system, isn't it? <laughs> I, you know, particularly when you get older, it's a real nice system. Uh, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life. Now they're talking about this, the child to be born here. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For you, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. <clears throat> then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. Women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. 
He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we see a change here in verse 13. And now the whole scene shifts. Before it was all about Boaz and, and the elders and they're in the city gate and so on. And now the scene shifts <coughs> and we're talking about the women and Naomi. And the son has been born. So some time has passed, obviously. And Boaz and Ruth are now absent from the scene. In fact, they're not, you know, the scene shifts to talking about Naomi and the child. But I also want you to notice that there is um, the Lord we see working in the background. The text says the Lord enabled her to conceive. And you see, you know, we see this, this, this praise to the Lord that the Lord enabled her to conceive. God is behind this. This thing was orchestrated by God. And the Lord was working around to bring the blessing of an heir to Naomi, Ruth, Elimelech, and Mahlon, and Killian as well. So that the child born is a gift from God, not just human sexuality. That the Lord is behind all of this. Yahweh, the God of Israel, deserves the credit for Naomi's radical reversal of fortune. And if you remember, the whole story started with, with Naomi. Naomi's in Moab, and she's poor, and she doesn't have any... You know, her husband died, <coughs> dies, and her two sons die, and she's left all alone with her two daughters-in-law. Now, the story shifts, and we've got Naomi in fullness. Ruth in fullness. So we went from emptiness to fullness. And Ruth, who entered Bethlehem a short time ago, now a full-fledged Israelite and the proud mother of a son. Isn't that incredible? And the women who created, cre greeted Naomi's sad return now are greeting the child's happy birth. So the whole scene totally changes. Those who heard Naomi call herself bitter now named her son Obed. Naomi, who returned empty, was now full. The whole scene shifts. And the townswomen give Yahweh for the reversal of events for Naomi. But it's so interesting here that it talks about there's a child now born to Naomi. But it doesn't say born to Ruth. <clears throat> Verse 6 says, Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. So it's kind of interesting, you know. I mean, it's, it, and we don't know exactly what happened, but the one commentator says this, that this, verb, this verse meant that Naomi was to raise the child as if he were her own son. That in other words, Naomi became a foster mother to this little child. Now, it's not, you know, taken away from Ruth and, and, uh, and Boaz. We don't know how much interaction there was, but Naomi is going to provide a great deal of, or maybe all the care, for this little child, Obed. And what this commentator suggests, and I, it's a, certainly an interesting theory, is that Ruth voluntarily gave up this little Obed to Naomi to raise. Said, this is yours. Remember the story of Hannah? 
in, in the Old Testament, and, and uh, Hannah gives the child over to Samuel to raise. Uh, it was, you know, God give, gives Hannah, as she cried out to the Lord, finally gives Hannah a child, and, and, he, and she gives him over to uh, Samuel to raise. So, um, so she became then a foster mother to Obed. And so the child was already Elimelech's heir, and hence Enamel's son. But uh, this child then could take care of Naomi in her old age. That's the whole idea of it. And so if that theory is right, then the motivation for all of this, and we've seen this before, was Ruth's incredible love for Naomi. And Ruth, out of love, not of, out of obligation, but out of love, says, okay, you take this child and raise him. He's, he's the one that you've been looking for. It's also interesting in here. It says, he become famous throughout Israel. So suddenly, we see a shift from Bethlehem, you know, prominence in Bethlehem to national prominence. That this child is not only going to be famous in Bethlehem, but this child is going to be famous throughout Israel. And of course, that David is indeed the great King David uh, comes out of this union of Boaz and Ruth. And then verse 18 says, This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So Obed then becomes a progenitor of the Davidic line. And some people say that that's the purpose of the book of Ruth, is that it, it all ends actually with the word David, because David, you know, and it's, it's written to show David's progenitors, and David's family line. And so suddenly the simple, clever human story of two struggling widows takes on a startling new dimension. It becomes a bright, radiant thread woven into the fabric of Israel's larger national history. And so this was not just about, you know, <clears throat> two people who, who, uh, who meet and so on. It's about the lineage of David and where David came from. Matthew 1, 1, uh, in following, it says, and I won't read all of it, it says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes all through the lineage and all through the genealogy of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And then verse 5, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So, Part of the reason that this is written is to show that David's genealogy and, and, and Christ's genealogy going back to David and then, of course, all the way back to Abraham and Noah and so on. But I want to talk about um, kind of wrapping all of this book of Ruth together, some of the things that we see, because I believe that the whole book points toward Jesus Christ. And I want to look at that. It set the stage for the coming of Christ. The whole book from beginning to end, all four chapters, is a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. 
The book of Ruth has Christ written all over it. I mean, of course, his name is not mentioned, but, but Christ, you know, we see Christ woven in and through this whole book. And the first thing is, there's five different areas that we see. And the first thing is, we see out of Ruth, out of the book of Ruth, and the character of Ruth and Boaz and, and um, Naomi, we see godly character. And as I mentioned before, you know, in, in writing the books that I on Christian character, I just became so aware how much the, the character of Christ is portrayed through all these different stories in the Old Testament. And we get woven through the Old Testament what the character of God is like. Here's what God is like. And, and one of the big areas is this book of Ruth. Because we see in Boaz, and we see in Ruth, and we see in Naomi, we see the character of Christ. We see faithfulness and loyalty and kindness and goodness and love and selflessness, trust and a relationship with God. All of these things woven through this story. And that God rewards faithfulness, or hesed. He rewards those who trust Him and those who live in integrity. And that that is going to affect future generations, for many, many generations. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a, the faithful God. And listen to this. Keeping his covenant love for a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So, you know, we, we look at, at the story of Ruth and then we say, out of that out of that kindness and that goodness and that faithfulness and so on, God brings this incredible family. And that family is traced all the way to Jesus Christ. So to me, it's a reminder to us that your faithfulness, your love, your integrity in the way that you live your life will, will, will um, affect generations upon generations upon generations, as it says here, up to a thousand generations. So we are setting the stage then when we act in integrity. It may seem like just a, a simple event, but we are actually affecting generations. I've never seen a study done of, you know, of, of uh, a person living in integrity and then all, the, all that comes out of that for generations upon generations. But you are affecting generations. Second thing we note is that this is Christ's genealogy. So not only is the spiritual foundation found in Ruth and Boaz, but the physical lineage is found in through Ruth and Boaz then up to the time of Christ. Micah 5.2 You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So we know that the, the Messiah then comes out of Bethlehem, and we know that he comes from the genealogy of David. And David then on to Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants. Boaz and Ruth were a link in the covenant with Israel. David was faithful and was called a man after God's own heart. Um, and 
God established in his word the covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and Phineas, and then the unconditional covenant given to David. It says in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom, talking about David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God says that, that this made a covenant with David that your, somebody your, you know, from your seed is going to rule forever. And of course that points to Jesus Christ. And then there's the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So all of that Old Testament, those Old Testament covenants then lead up to this time when the new covenant comes and Christ is that fulfillment of the new, new covenant. He ushers in the new, new covenant in his name. And that covenant is that I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. In other words, it's not going to be external obedience anymore. It's going to be internal obedience. It's going to be obedience from a change in heart, a new nature implanted within us. God's Holy Spirit implanted within us, and that is going to enable us to keep what we are called to keep, to live the kind of life that we are called to live. Fourth thing is that Christ became our kinsman redeemer. And just as Boaz became the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi and their land, now Christ becomes our kinsman redeemer. He bought us back out of slavery and he sets us upon a, he sets us upon a rock and he, and he says, okay, this is now the new covenant. You are now mine. We were under the dominion of the world, Satan, and our own sinful nature, but Christ has purchased us back and reconciled us with the Father. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Ephesians 1.4 In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So not only are we part of the whole lineage of Christ uh, through, you know, through David, through Jesus Christ, but now we are adopted into a brand new family. We have been predestined. You have been predestined. God knew you before you were born. God predestined you to be adopted as his sons. So just as Boaz then became the kinsman redeemer of that land and Ruth and Naomi in order to buy back from poverty, so Christ buys us back from spiritual poverty and, and calls us his own. We are part of God's family, redeemed by the sacrifice of what Christ did on the cross. 
Ephesians 2.11 Therefore remember that formerly you were her Gentiles by birth. We're all Gentiles by birth, aren't we? <laughs> Some of you maybe have Jewish roots. Anybody have Jewish roots in here? Okay. Did I see a hand back there? Some Jewish roots. Okay. All the rest of us were, were adopted into, as Gentiles, into this family of God, into this, this family that God has set aside for themselves. Therefore, remember, the, formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember at that time, here's what we were like. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So what, a, you know, what an inheritance we have. We who were separated, we who were excluded from citizenship in Israel, we, we who were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, we who were without hope and without God, have now been adopted into God's family, and we get it all in one package. And our new status is as God's children forever. We are forever grafted in to the root, that native rootstock of Israel. We are grafted in as Gentile believers. We are grafted into that rootstock. So the story of Ruth gives us great hope because we were just like Ruth. We were we had nothing. We were in poverty, you know, spiritually speaking. We were dead to sin, dead in transgressions and sins. Christ came along. Christ said, I will buy you back from slavery. I will buy you back from the world. And you and I have been purchased by Christ, by Christ's redemption. He ransomed himself. He gave his life so that we can have life. He gave himself so that we can have life and life more abundantly. That's the good news. That's what you know, this book of Ruth is all about, is that it's this foreshadowing of what Christ did. So every time you know, you're tempted, who am I? Well, you're, you're Ruth and Naomi before, you know, before, before Boaz bought them back out of poverty. Christ has paid the price for us so that we can have life. like to stand, we'll sing our closing hymn, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory. Amen. And you're supposed to clap. I was once a sinner, but I came, pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given. And I found that he always kept his word. There's a new name written down in glory. And it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. And the white robed angels sing the story. A sinner has
take this story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and how, how it is such a beautiful story, how it is led, how it fit into the, the life and the history that became our Savior. Lord, and we thank you so much for sharing with us, for making sure that these stories are, were written and recorded so that we could learn from them and we could understand your love. This we lift, we lift up in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God be with us till we meet again. Be with us till we meet again.